Hello there. Welcome to this episode of Bridging the Gaps. I'm your host, Dr. Vaseem Akhtar. Today I'm joined by Professor Jimal Khalili, a theoretical physicist at the University of Surrey, where he holds a distinguished chair in physics as well as a university chair in the public engagement in science. He is a prominent author, broadcaster, and one of Britain's best-known science communicators. In this episode of Bridging the Gaps, we are going to discuss his new book, The Joy of Science. Uh, Jim, thank you very much for joining me and a very warm welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to our chat. Jim, science is a broad discipline. There are many ways to do science. You say in the book that there is a view out there that science is a collection of facts about the world. And you say that this view is not correct. You suggest in the book that science should be seen as a process. Science is a way of thinking. Science is a way of making sense of the world. In your view, how should the discipline of science be perceived? Well, I think it's something that wider society has uh, really learnt a lot about over the past two years of the pandemic, because they have been able to, to see how scientists behave, but also how the process of science develops and, and evolves. It's true, we learn, because we do science at school, the people who have not ended up working in science, they imagine science is this collection of facts, that, you know, the, the world behaves in this certain way, and this what we know about the world, that is science. It's not, that's knowledge. And we have m- many other ways of gaining knowledge and understanding, whether it's through art and literature and music or, or, or philosophy or religion or contemplation. But science is different because science is, is this, as, as you mentioned, it's a process. It's this way of getting to that knowledge. It's a way of acquiring the knowledge. That's what science is, not the knowledge itself. And I think it's really important for wider society to understand what science is, but also to know how this scientific approach works. How do we get to what we know and why should we trust that understanding when we get to it? Because, you know, we're, we're surrounded these days by very subjective ideas that people, you know, my, my opinion is as valid as yours. You scientists say this. Well, I happen to think that. Getting across how and why we believe what we do, I think, is as important as explaining this, the, 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 the knowledge that we've gained through science. And there are many different ways uh, that we carry out the scientific uh, work in, in, in many different disciplines. Yes, I, this is something that I've really come to appreciate more and more uh, uh, in my work as a broadcaster for the BBC, for, for BBC Radio, um, where I interview other scientists in a programme, The Life Scientific. And I've just realized how broad science is. I'm a physicist. And, and if someone says, well, what, what other sciences are? Well, of course, there's chemistry and there's biology. But then you discover that science is so much. It's, it's uh, not only understanding the natural world around us, but understanding human behavior and the social sciences. So uh, there are lots of different ways of doing science. You can be writing equations. You could be in a laboratory with a white lab coat, mixing chemicals. You could be carrying out a clinical trial to find the efficacy of a vaccine. You could be l- looking at birds nesting on the, on the edge of a cliff or climbing into a volcano to study the, you know, the, 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 the structure of the earth. The sci- or you could be simply trying to understand human behavior uh, and, and how, how a, a virus spreads throughout a population. So science is such a broad thing 
that is very it's very difficult to define it all we can do is say what do the, all these different aspects have in common in terms of how we do science so the outcome of the process of science is to find and create new knowledge uh, to find truth but we live in this age where sometimes truth becomes relative uh, and you briefly alluded to that few moments ago so different people believe different versions of truth how does science deal with this issue of relative truth and absolute truth it well, it's some, to some extent it depends which area of science we're talking about so if in my area of physics there are absolute truths out there the way our universe is now it may be that our best scientific theories are not explaining that absolute truth but what we try to do is get as close as possible we develop our theories we improve our understanding in the hope that one day we will we'll have a, a complete understanding but the universe behaves in a certain way i use a, an example if i drop a ball from the height of 5 meters it takes 1 second to hit the ground on earth um uh, and and that's it's not half a second not 2 seconds you can't have an opinion about that that is an absolute truth about the way gravity works on earth but when it comes to truths about human behavior human nature then it does get messy and it does inevitably get mixed up with our ideologies our beliefs our culture what we regard as taboo whether we have a particular religious understanding or faith uh, and then uh, and you get all the way to sort of philosophical moral truths you know is it right or wrong to do this is it is it a good thing or a bad thing to do that and we can have and and the issues there are just are gray they're not black and white but we live in a world today where people demand absolutes not only do they create their own truths but then they say you cannot argue with me about this truth this is i'm going to believe this i don't care what you say and that is dangerous and we will come back to this uh, later in our discussion but I want to continue with this multiple versions of truth and element of uncertainty that sometimes exist in the scientific world. Now, you say in the book that something is either true or it is not. But when we work in the field of let's say quantum mechanics where there are many unknowns, we know what is going on mathematically, but we don't know how and why. then how scientific method helps us to continue working when we don't understand something fully well quantum mechanics is is interesting and probably quite unique in in science and i say that as as a practitioner of quantum mechanics because in science in general you have a theory or a hypothesis which gives some explanation about the world and you test it and you carry out experiments and observations and gather data to see how 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 uh, accurate it is and you maybe you can improve it but a scientific theory particularly in physics say an equation also has to come with a narrative a story what does this equation mean what does it tell us quantum mechanics powerful though the mathematics is seems to have multiple ways of of ex- of explaining because it's such a counterintuitive idea about the subatomic world um we know it's it's powerful we know it's right i mean if 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 quantum mechanics was wrong i wouldn't be talking to you over this podcast r- remotely because quantum mechanics allowed us to understand the structure of atoms how electrons arrange themselves we de- developed the whole of modern electronics in the 20th century based on our understanding of quantum mechanics if it was wrong we wouldn't have so much of our technology today and yet 
there are different ways of explaining what's going on. Some physicists say, well, that's just a matter of philosophical choice. It doesn't matter. As long as the, uh, the mathematics works and the quantum mechanics works, uh, who cares? I would argue, well, that's, a ver that's an engineer's perspective. I'm a physicist. <laughs> I want to know how and why. We may not know, have the correct explanation, but nature, that atom that we're trying to study, is behaving in a certain way. So there is an absolute truth about how nature at the quantum scale is, is doing what it does. It's our problem to see, to find out what that truth is and to find which way of explaining what's going on is the correct way. And for nearly 100 years now, we're still struggling to find that correct interpretation of quantum mechanics. Scientific method that we follow to conduct scientific investigation, is there a feature in the scientific method, a built-in feature in the scientific method that helps us to, to seek absolute truth and then to find this one version of truth? Is, is there any built-in feature, various steps that we have to follow, repeatability, evidence and all this? Do you think that it, 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 it is the best that is out there that helps us to find absolute truth? I think it's, I believe it's the best uh, method that we have to reach that truth. It doesn't mean that it guarantees that we will reach that truth. All we can do is say, this is according to our current understanding, this is the best we can do. This is what we think is happening. Uh, you know, when, if, if you think back in the, in the, in the, at the beginning of the pandemic, scientists didn't understand how the virus was transmitted. So we were told you just, you have to wash your hands very carefully and don't touch things and then, and that you'll be safe. A few months into the pandemic, as scientists studied how the virus was transmitted, we realized that it's mostly transmitted through the air that we breathe. So in an enclosed space where there's not very good ventilation, it's much more likely you'll, you'll, you'll inhale the virus than through touching. And so we learn as we go along. We have a current understanding, a current theory or hypothesis, and then informed by data, by observation, by repeatability, somebody else doing an experiment, seeing if they get the same results as you, we either gain more trust in our theory, we become more, more confident that, that our ideas are correct, or we discover that we were wrong. And, and a good scientist has to say, I was wrong about that. I have to change my mind. <laughs> Jim, I was very pleased to see the title of uh, chapter three, Mysteries Are to be Embraced, but Also to be Solved. Because there is a view in scientific community that uh, words and terms like mystery, oh, no, no, don't use this term. Mystery, there is nothing mysterious. We will get uh, to, to, to everything eventually. But, but in my own teaching practice, I sometimes see that young learners, they are driven by curiosity and mysteries out there, unknowns out there quantum mechanics, the origin of the universe, what happened before Big Bang. These are very important mysteries, quote unquote, that make them curious and they learn and they study and they then actually do scientific work. So when you use this term mysteries, were you a bit hesitant? Were you fully confident that no, I'll go ahead and use this term? I, I fully agree with you, actually. I think if we give the impression that science is all about cold, hard, rational facts that are all un perfectly understood and neatly packaged. Here's the knowledge. Clever people have, have learned this knowledge. You have to learn it, it, particularly in teaching students the next generation. Then I think 
then they're not going to be inspired you know wh why should someone be curious if if all the questions have been answered it's much healthier and much more sensible to get across the idea that that science is about being curious about what we don't understand. You know, we, you can look stuff up now on Google, right? So there's facts and knowledge, it's there. It, that's, that's not interesting. I can look it up whenever I like. It's, it's the mysteries. It's what we don't understand that science is trying to, to, to answer. That's what makes it fun, not simply regurgitating what has already been discovered and, and well understood. Yeah, you have to do that. You have you have to learn the basics, you know, before you have to learn the equations of of, of Newtonian mechanics or, or something in physics or the nature of certain chemical reactions, or you have to understand a bit of genetics if you want to do biological research. But what is interesting is to be curious about what we have yet to learn, what we have yet, uh, the mysteries that we have yet to solve. The book encourages readers to think rationally. Uh, however, there is a view that we can be rational up to a certain point. We can be rational up to a certain point. There will always be personal views. There will always be emotions. We all are driven by different type of bias that exist out there. So what do you think about this? That Can we fully embrace rationality or there will always be other elements? I don't think we're ever going to fully embrace rationality. And indeed, if we were all purely cold, hard rationalists, the world would be a very boring place. <laughs> so I, I think it's the very, what, what is wonderful about humanity as a, a, for us as a species is that we can be irrational, that we can act on, on, on emotion or instinct uh, sometimes. But obviously the, the, the flip side is that, yes, we do tend to act towards Uh, um, our own biases, our own ideological views. We believe what we want to believe, what we already think is correct. We don't like hearing stuff that goes against what we already think. That is human nature. But the scientific method acts against that. It tries to correct for that. So that's so we're not saying we should all be rational, but thankfully, certainly in science, we have the scientific method that stops us from purely being biased and wanting our theory to be right. Because in, in science, bad theories, bad ideas don't last for long. Eventually, they will have to be got rid of. Even if the people who, who their proponents want to keep believing them, science will progress and will move on. And I think we should try and do that more in everyday life as well. Not to be cold, hard rationalists, but to examine our biases, examine what why we believe what we believe. And, and, and you encourage Uh, readers in in chapters where you are talking about don't value your opinion over evidence and try to recognize your biases so can you give us a little bit on, on these that how you would uh, encourage uh, curious minds uh, that uh, they should be concerned uh, about uh, the strength of their personal opinion and uh, the impact of the bias that, that they might hold mm. well i mean we all have personal opinions and certainly when it comes to much of the affairs of, of humanity, you know, they are completely subjective and that's fine. You know, why I can't explain why I support a particular football team or why I like a particular kind of music that may be different from the music that you like. And that's fine. There isn't a correct answer. There isn't a correct piece of music or correct type of art or literature that we should all like. We're not wrong in the fact that we have different 
tastes and different values and 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 and, and different ways of looking at the world. But we should also be trying to examine when when it when it comes to particular ideas that may have an, an influence effect on society when it when it when it deals with rational truths about how the world really is then we should examine why we believe what we do and i i use the example in the book by comparing a scientific theory with a conspiracy theory because a conspiracy theorist will say i'm also behaving scientifically i am curious i believe the earth is flat let's say for example I'm, I'm gathering evidence, I'm, I'm uh, thinking about it, I'm trying to solve the problems, I'm trying to have a theory that explains stuff. I, am I not being a scientist? The difference, of course, is that the conspiracy theorist doesn't examine their biases. You, if you were to ask a conspiracy theorist, what evidence would it take to persuade you that you are wrong? And they would have to admit that nothing would. You know, that, that they, they are not yes. prepared to change their mind. Whereas in science, we have to, a good scientist has to examine their bias, has to be prepared to change their mind. So it's not just a case of opinion. It's a matter of evidence and, and, and where that evidence comes from and whether it can be trusted. Uh, because, you know, we can't hang on to ideas just because we want them to be right or true. Uh, Jim, we, when we say we live in the age of information, we must acknowledge we live in the age of misinformation and in the age of disinformation. How do you see this challenge of widespread availability of misinformation and disinformation? Is it hurting the cause and the discipline of science? You have briefly alluded to this few moments ago, uh, but I just want you to expand on that a bit more. Yes, it's a, it's a huge problem in society today. And, you know, I guess amplified by the internet and social media that in the past, uh, you know, go back pre-internet, we would read a particular newspaper or watch a particular news channel, and we had a view that wasn't tainted by other alternative views. And so I knew what I believed. I had a particular ideological viewpoint and, and, a, and a way of looking at the world. Uh, in, in part, I'm embedded within my society, within my culture. What do my family and friends believe? And we never questioned. But now we have information coming at us so thick and fast that it is very difficult. Even people who are trying to be rational, who, who, who appreciate that they shouldn't believe everything they see or on the internet or read or hear, it's still difficult for them to disentangle, as you say, what is the good information from the misinformation, which is just wrong, from the deliberately disinformation uh, and, 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 and the fake news and so on. Uh, so, so it is a big challenge. How do we deal with that? The internet has been wonderful in terms of connecting us all, in terms of democratizing the flow of information. So it isn't just someone giving you their view and you, and that's the only view you, you have access to. But we do have to find a way as societies to learn who to trust and what to trust. How, how do we discriminate between the good and bad information? And that's not straightforward because, of course, we are driven by our biases. We have this confirmation bias. I like to listen to people that I agree with. I don't like to listen to people with the opposing views. And so I avoid hearing that. So we tend to be in our echo chambers, in our bubbles. And yet 
we have all this information. We can't avoid the information from elsewhere. Yes, it's good that it gives us an alternative picture, but how do you know that alternative picture is correct? How do you know what you believe is correct? You have to examine these things. And, and you know, we're not all trained to do that. We don't know if we see something on YouTube, whether it's uh, an expert who knows what they're talking about is telling you something that is, is true or is someone who's pushing a particular ideological view. So it's hard for the average person to know. This is exactly that you discuss in the book that people should not be afraid when they have to change their mind. So don't be afraid uh, to change your mind, you say in the book. But uh, this is a human instinct that uh, we don't like this. Uh, we, we would like to stick to our views. So how you encourage people that uh, they should not be afraid uh, to change their mind? Well, I mean, yeah, certainly it is instinctive. I mean, this is uh, psychologists call this cognitive dissonance. So, you know, you have a particular belief about something and then you are you encounter a view that goes against that belief, evidence that goes against what you what you think. And it's it's a genuine mental feeling of discomfort that uh, that you don't want to hear that because that's not what you, you, you think is correct. And so you, you, you downplay the evidence coming that you don't agree with. But if there's any evidence that supports your existing view, however flimsy or, or low quality that evidence is, you will elevate it and say, look, see, that's, that, that, that's why I believe what I believe. So it's human nature that, that we don't like to change our minds or to admit our mistakes. But as scientists, we are trained to have to do that that we are never certain we should never be 100% sure about something and admitting a mistake in science is is empowering it's seen as a strength a scientist who never changes their mind who who never admits that there might be that the the possibility of them that they might be wrong they are bad scientists they don't survive very long in science it's a it's a powerful positive to say I used to think that, but now I've learned something extra. I have changed my mind. That's respected in science in a way that it's not respected in, say, politics. You know, <laughs> a, a, when does a politician ever say, do you know what? I used to think this economic um, solution was the way to do it. I've changed my mind. I realized by talking to people and thinking about it that actually I was wrong. In politics, when somebody says I was wrong, I'm sorry, I've changed my mind. That's a weakness. Uh, so what I try and argue in the book is it would be refreshing if more wider in society, people were prepared to say, actually, I've listened to your viewpoint and you have persuaded me that I was wrong. I'm going to change my mind. It, 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 people don't like to do that. But I think if we scientists can be trained to change our minds and not feel ashamed or, or, or weak, then I don't see why wider society can't learn this lesson too. This leads us nicely to my next question, Jim. Why you think it is very important that we all stand up for reality? We live in a world where, certainly through because of the internet, because of our connectivity, that people would be would like to push particular ideological views, uh, and they will always have an audience. There will always be people who will listen to them. Um, if we just think about, for example, after the the the, re, the, the last U.S. elections uh, and the supporters of of, of uh, Donald Trump 
refuse to to acknowledge the the results of the of the election. In my view, they created an alternative reality, whereby in that world, something other than what actually happened happened. Now, creating our our own realities is called solipsism. We can't, well, we can, I suppose, create our reality. That's fine. You can live in whatever dream world you you want. I'm not going to tell you you can't. (laughs) But sometimes that, that has an impact on other people, on wider society. Uh, and so there is a reality out there. Certainly the, the reality that involves the multitude or and complexity of human affairs is not something that, you know, is, 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 that we can say is absolute, as an absolute truth. There are different perspectives and different op- opinions on it. That's fine. I mean, not everything is like, astronomy or particle physics where a fact is a fact and there's no argument but there is only one reality some stuff something either happened or it didn't happen uh uh, sometimes it's messy sometimes it's not black and white sometimes it's gray but then the reality is it is gray Uh, and you you can't say something different so i think standing up for reality simply means you cannot create your own version of the world just because it suits you or it suits your ideological view. Uh, you know, there is a real world out there uh, that we are part of uh, uh, and it's rich and, it's, and it's, there's positives and there's negatives and there's good and there's bad, but it is what it is. <laughs> and so that reality is something we should try and celebrate and acknowledge. Uh, and and uh, if we want to create our own version of the world, that's fine, but you know, when, when it has an impact on other people, then I think that it becomes dangerous. Uh, Jim, you are one of the best science communicators. When we see this interconnectivity, we see this um, uh, these podcasts, these various channels to communicate, various tools that are available to us, it feels that it should be very easy to communicate science. But at the same time, we discuss that there is misinformation and disinformation. But when it comes to policy making, it is very important that our policy makers have right information. Now, there are various approaches. We do science communication to encourage young learners to take up science courses. We do science communication for policy making. But most of the policy making happens in the realm of politics. And usually politicians have their own priorities. Uh, this is a different discipline. Sometimes it is almost impossible for them to look beyond the next election because it's the survival of the government. It's the survival of the next election. That is important Mm. then uh, 30 years down the line, climate change and other things. And you and I have uh, witnessed this in past three conferences of climate change that how difficult it is to create consensus. So my question to you is that... uh, uh, we need more effective science communication. We need some other mechanisms where policymakers are taught, are informed that how important it is to pay attention to these climate change uh, issues and other relevant matters. Is science communication enough here, what we are doing now? Sorry, very long-winded. Yeah, very- yeah. No, it, but it's a hugely important point. And I think, again, it's a, it's a point that has been really brought forward over the course of the past two years of the pandemic. You're right. Well, years ago, if someone was to ask me, why do you communicate science? And I say exactly for the points you said, well, I, I want to inspire the next generation. I want 
scientific um, discourse and discussions about the natural world to be part of popular culture. I want people to talk about, you know, astronomy or, 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 or genetics or whatever in the, in the same way they talk about sport or politics or, or, or music, for example. Um, and also, we, you know, we, we, we have to have a more scientifically literate society. I think that third one, that scientific literacy within wider society, which and by wider society, I also include the politicians and the policymakers, I think is, has become vitally, vitally important. It's fun to talk about science, to make a science documentary that people can enjoy and, and wonder, uh, but it's absolutely crucial that how we gain our knowledge of the world through science is, is understood by the policymakers. You're right that um, when, when scientists advise governments about lockdowns and wearing masks and so on, politicians have other things they have to take into account. You know, what, how does it impact the economy? Um, will I get elected next time? Um, um, public acceptability and so on. So scientists have to acknowledge that it's not the polit political decisions that are made are going inevitably to be more than just about the scientific evidence. But it's absolutely necessary that our politicians understand how science works. Yes, it would be great to have more scientists going into politics, but I don't think it's necessary to have the, the technical scientific expertise to do politics. It's a different skill set. But what we do want is for our politi politicians to understand how science works, to know how to trust um, epidemiological, you know, sort of how a virus is spread, to understand why a vaccine uh, is important, how it works. Because if they trust the science, many people are, are obviously, you know, the, well, the, they're, they're the people who make the policies. They're the people who, who control public perception, public behavior. So it's not just in a democracy, of course, it, we, we should also make sure the public themselves are scientifically literate. So, uh, the public, the, the average person who isn't a scientist doesn't need to understand the details of climate science, but they should at least appreciate that it's a good idea to recycle, that it's a good idea not to burn fossil fuels, to use renewable energy if we can, because they understand enough of the science to know what we are doing to, to, to the Earth's climate. So a little bit of scientific literacy is, is absolutely vital to face up to the challenges that we have in the 21st century. As we get over the COVID pandemic, we have many other challenges, in particular climate change, that we have to tackle. Yes, the scientists, the politicians, the economists are the ones who are going to be working on the solutions, but wider society also needs to understand why these things are important. Scientific literacy isn't just about understanding the, the knowledge it's about understanding how we get that knowledge, how science works. Jim, we are now really pressed for time in terms of uh, climate change and the relevant challenges that are out there. And uh, not only that we are not seeing uh, movements by uh, politicians and policymakers, there are increased polarities in various societies. And those polarities are undermining what scientists are saying that we should stop everything else and focus on these challenges. 
are you optimistic that uh, uh, through better science communication or what you and your colleagues are doing, maybe things will change, uh, things will improve and we will be ready to tackle these challenges in time? I, I've always been an optimist by nature, a glass half full person. So I've always felt that, you know, in the end, we'll, we'll come to our senses and realize that, you know, we have to do something. But you're right, it's becoming increasingly urgent. I was asked the other day when certainly in, in, in Western Europe, um, climate science ha- it overlaps with climate activism. Uh, and is, is science becoming activism? And I said, well, it shouldn't be. But sometimes if something is very important, you know, we have to shout about it. We, ha- we have to get across the urgency. So certainly for something like tackling climate change, we can't just say, well, you know, we just have to have more science communicators and we have to explain and we have the public have to be better, more scientifically literate and, and they will realise that something has to happen. No, we have to act. We have to act now. Things are changing. You know, 10, 20 years ago, there was still a debate. The media would, uh, would say... Well, let's interview a climate scientist who says that hu- humans are altering the climate, but we should also have, for the purposes of balance, someone from the opposing view who says, no, it has nothing to do with us, it's just natural, right? I think we've got to the stage, certainly, for example, here in the UK, where that debate is over because consensus is that, yes, it really is happening. We're seeing the evidence, we're seeing that we do have to do something. We will, we're not 100% sure, but then in science, you can never be 100% sure. But if you're 99% sure that we're damaging our planet and damaging ourselves for future generations, 99% sure is pretty much good enough to get us off our backsides to do something urgently, right? You don't need to be 100% sure. If you go to your doctor and your doctor says, you have to give up smoking and drinking, or maybe in three years you'll be dead. And you say, okay, doctor, how certain are you of your prognosis? And the doctor says, I'm about 99% sure. You don't say, ah, okay, so you're not certain. So you may be wrong. Therefore, I'll carry on doing what I'm doing. So we adopt the precautionary principle. Chances are, this is correct. Let's, in all likelihood, things are going to get bad. Let's do something about it. So getting that idea across, I think, would help, I hope, shake people awake to say we have to do something now, not five, ten years from now. So let's uh, uh, get back to some positive discussion now in a little bit. Uh, Jim, the title of the book is The Joy of Science. You are a science communicator. You are a a researcher. Uh, What are the elements of your work? Where do you get most of the joy from? I've, I'm lucky in that I do lots of different things. You know, so I, I, I teach my students, I do my research, I, I write popular science books, I do radio and TV broadcasts, I give public lectures. And I think that that balance between academic life as a professor of physics in a university and the role and responsibilities that I have sitting on committees and boards and judging research grants and research papers and, and uh, 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 boards outside of, in, outside of my university as well. And then the public face is something that I, uh, hasn't always been the, the, the case. And I think the UK is probably ahead of 
most of the rest of the world in in respecting the importance of of engaging the public in, in science, doing the sort of the public side of things. Um, so I've been very privileged to be able to have been able to do both. But, you know, if asked, you have to give something up or you have to give most of it up, what do you revert to? I would say that my day job is still as a research physicist. So still what gives me the most joy, the most buzz is actually doing my research. It, you know, I've, I have a PhD student who's nearly finished his thesis now and he's struggling with a particular highly mathematical problem to try and derive an equation. And it's very messy and complicated. And we're trying to find a way of getting there. And whatever he does, he gets the wrong answer or infinity. And I find myself lying in bed at night, last thing before I go to sleep. And I'm imagining I have integrals and Greek symbols flying around in my head because that's what excites me. And so I think the research is, which is something that I, I did, you know, this is why I, I studied physics in the first place, because I wanted to do research into fundamental questions about the universe. That is still what inspires me today. When, when I'm asked, uh, would, uh, how do I become a science communicator? You know, if young students ask me, I say, well, you have to first decide, do you want to be a science communicator or a scientist who communicates? I am the latter. I want to do the science, but I also want to communicate it. I don't want to talk just talk about other people's work. I want to be able to do it myself as well and then tell the world about it. But it's the doing, the research itself, that really uh, is probably what excites me. Just continuing with this briefly, uh, I know that perhaps we need uh, another full episode for this, but uh, you are doing research in the field of open quantum systems. Briefly, just tell us what, what you are doing in the lab, what you are looking for. Mm. Well, uh, the quantum mechanics that, that students are taught at university, if they're doing a physics degree or a chemistry degree, uh, where they solve the equations of quantum mechanics, most famously the Schrodinger equation, it's really talking about a system a quantum system that is behaving in isolation of the rest of the world, an electron moving around in a box or two atoms colliding or, or whatever it is down at that subatomic scale. But in reality, in the real world, quantum systems don't exist in isolation. They're interacting with their surroundings. Now, the founding fathers of quantum mechanics, Niels Bohr, Heisenberg and Pauli, they had a way of dealing with that. They called it the measurement problem. So you have a quantum system that evolves according to the Schrodinger equation. And then it makes a prediction about something that would happen in the laboratory. And therefore you make a measurement. And that's when the quantum world interacts with our macro world. And you see a, a pointer on the dial or a Geiger counter clicks or a bright spot on a fluorescent screen. And, and you've observed it. Actually, that observation is carried out, that measurement is carried out all the time by the environment surrounding the quantum system. So an open quantum system is one that is not behaving in isolation. It's, it's also entangled and um, in, interacting with its surrounding environment. And so it's not the Schrodinger equation we solve. It's another equation called the master equation, um, which explains how, how a quantum system interacts with its surroundings, how quickly it loses its quantumness, you know, and that's, that's how we enter something called decoherence. So it's studying these ideas of decoherence and entanglement that are not taught. I think, I think we're going to have to start to teach them to undergraduates because it's becoming clearer in recent years 
that they are fundamental aspects if you really want to understand the quantum world. And do you think that your research will lead to the resolution of this observer impact? Well, uh, I don't want to be so arrogant as to say that I'm going to solve it, given that cleverer people than me have been thinking about this for many, many years. So it's not trivial. It's not, it's, it's not trivial. But we are publishing papers on, on uh, how a quantum system interacts with its environment, both purely mathematically deriving new equations that take into account more of the physics that we need, but also something that we can compare with experiments, uh, 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 compare with sort of laboratory observations. And one area that we're very uh, uh, active in is called quantum biology, which uh, is really about looking to see quantum effects inside living cells, inside, for example, how protons move in DNA. Uh, so the challenge there is not only to do the, the, the mathematics and solve the equations and write computer codes, but to, to, to do experiments in the lab and see if our theories actually match what the real world is doing. Because I'm, I'm a physicist who doesn't just like doing the maths. I want to be able to check if my theories are right. I need to compare it against data and experimental observation as well. Jim, we are discussing your book, The Joy of Science. Uh, we have touched upon a number of topics that you discuss in this book. Obviously, there is a lot more in the book. Uh, is there anything else that you suggest we should touch upon before we close this discussion? I think we've covered most of the uh, the, the the chapters in the book. I, I, I don't think I'm, I'm giving talks about the book now. And, and so I think we've ticked all those boxes. So I'm Trying to think if there's anything out that I haven't covered. I don't think so. I don't think so. That's that's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no. It's been. That, I think it's been a very thorough, thorough discussion. <laughs> Professor Jim Al Khalili, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on Bridging the Gaps. Thank you very much indeed for having me. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>